0: Last week, we covered 13 separate mitzvot related to the pastoral offering, the Korban Pesach. And this week, I want to cover eight more mitzvot that are related to the festival of Pesach in general. Six of them are going to be related to the prohibition of eating chametz, of eating leavened bread on the holiday of Pesach and even a little bit beforehand, one For the mitzvah, the requirement of consuming matzah on Pesach. And a very interesting one, the eighth one, which is there's a mitzvah of retelling the Exodus story. It's actually one of the 613 commandments in the Torah is to tell over the story on the eve of Pesach. Of course, we fulfill it every year during the Seder. The Haggadah is oriented around really getting navigating you through all these mitzvahs and all these requirements of the night. But there's a mitzvah for us to go back to the story, to the very humble beginnings of our nation. A great family descends to terrible lows, spends a couple hundred years in a foreign land, gets enslaved, is tormented and persecuted in all different kinds of ways. And then with miracles, with the Almighty's outstretched arm, we are extracted from amongst the Egyptians and ten plagues, splitting of the sea, death of the firstborn later, we're a nation, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. That is to another mitzvah that we fulfill every year that relates to Pesach and relates to the, to the Exodus. So just to break down the mitzvahs before we get into the details. Number one, there's a mitzvah to eat matzah on the first two nights of Pesach. Even though we're told in the Torah that we're supposed to eat matzah for seven days... In actuality, there is no positive mitzvah to eat matzah for the duration of Pesach. It's only for the night, for the Seder nights. Of course, there's still prohibition against consuming chametz, against consuming leavened bread for the duration of of Pesach, but the actual, we only make it with a blessing, al achilas matzah, to fulfill the commandment of eating matzah, that's only done at the Seder. So that's number one. There are three prohibitions against consuming chametz. Number one, not to eat chametz on Pesach, on the day before Pesach, which is the 14th day of Nisan. And it's one of those interesting things that, you know, there's this gradual transformation from pre-Pesach to Pesach. And there's this interim period in between where you actually, there's a time where you're not allowed to eat neither chametz nor matzah. For the last few hours before Pesach, the prohibition against consuming chametz rate kick starts, but there's actually, you're not actually not allowed to eat matzah until the eve, until the actual Seder night. And the idea is it just matzah kind of has a distinct taste. If you're eating it for seven days, it kind of, it's a little too heavy for you, but like the first couple of crunches are pretty awesome. And therefore, to kind of make it special, the rabbi said, don't eat matzah for 30 days before Pesach. So starting from Purim, which is exactly a month before Pesach, we don't eat matzah. Okay, so there's a prohibition to eat chametz, not just from on Pesach itself, but beginning on noon, the day before Pesach. Then there's a third prohibition against eating chametz on Pesach, and then there is an additional prohibition against eating food items that have chametz particles in it, So the Torah differentiates between something which is actually 100% chametz versus something that has, let's say, 2% or 1% or a certain minuscule amount of chametz in it. That's also a prohibition. And then there's an additional section of of prohibitions related to harboring chametz. Uh, And there's one mitzvah to rid our homes of any chametz. We have to burn it. In fact, there's a mitzvah to burn chametz the day before Pesach and then two separate prohibitions that chametz should not be seen nor found in the home. So nowadays, like before Pesach, you clean out the whole house, and even areas where you're not likely to go find it, if it's within reason that you could maybe encounter it, you may run into the problem of visualizing chametz in your domain, and therefore you either have to clear away the chametz, or you have to make it that it's not your domain. So what what's commonly done nowadays is people would take, let's say, a certain part of their house, put all their whiskey, which is chametz, of course, put all the whiskey into, let's say, a certain room, close the room, sell the room to someone who is, let's say, a non-Jew who doesn't have a prohibition of owning or harboring chametz over Pesach. And uh, and then you're able to sidestep this problem without selling or spilling out all your very valuable chametz. In fact, I think this past year, I saw some guy sold his hummets, sold his whiskey to a non And then in the middle of Pesach, the non knocks on the door and says, okay, I'm ready to try some of my chametz that I bought from you. He walked into the house. He took out uh, the whiskey, poured himself a nice cup of scotch, drank it, and left. So it is, it is a loophole. It is a loophole. Everyone knows that it's a loophole because no one really intends on buying it. And you don't really intend on selling it. Uh, so so it does seem a little bit chicanerous that you're sidestepping the problem. Maybe you should spill out all your whiskey. Some people have a tradition not to sell hummus. They say, okay, whatever we have, we have. If there's, you know, if I have, you know, 15 boxes of pasta that I bought when it was on sale or something like that, that would just burn it all. And some say, no, there's no problem. You know, halakhically you're able to avoid all the issues. You don't own it. You don't see it. it's not in your domain. And you have to solve the problems, and therefore, it's okay if you sell it. And and technically speaking, should the guy decide he wants to actually consummate the deal, he could finish paying up the rest of the money and take all the chametz and do with it with it whatever he pleases. Now it belongs to him, uh, but he does technically halakhically own the chametz. You don't; it's not in your domain; it's in his domain, and it's not a problem. And in fact, um, like the state of Israel, they have the. The chief rabbis meet with the Arab Bedouin, the same guy every year. We know for sure he's not Jewish. Totally verified. And they sell all the chametz assets of the entire state. Uh, That's owned by the government, that is. Uh, Every individual, of course, has to sell their own chametz. Uh, They sell it to him and it's a whole thing. And he ends up making some money on the deal because they buy back for a little bit more after seven, eight days later. And, uh, it's, it's a nice workaround to, uh, to a otherwise, uh, very, uh, intractable problem. And finally, the eighth mitzvah is the mitzvah of telling over the story of the Exodus. And I think definitely going back to last week and this week, and there's a few more Pesach related mitzvahs, uh, and there's definitely things that are more tangentially related to, to Pesach and to the Passover story. And that should, I think, evoke a question <laughs> you know why is there such obsession with the exodus why is it such a central tenet of our religion that there's so many mitzvot that are there to 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 remind us to invoke the festival to to invoke the exodus and to get us to remember these miraculous events uh, and that's i think one of the overriding themes of of all these mitzvos. and like we spoke about last week, there's the notion of remembering the miracle. It's such, it was such a it's such an amazing, unprecedented miracle. Mir- miracles witnessed by millions of people. Miracles that kickstarted our religion that we're still we're still reliving till today. You know, I've said in the past that everyone knows the date when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. But no one seems to know the exact date, maybe someone here does, but most people don't seem to know the exact date when, let's say, Lincoln was shot, or when the Brits burned down the White House in 1814, whereas millions of Jews every year on the exact same date of the Exodus, we relive it. It's celebrated on that day, and we make a huge big deal about it, even though these events happened not hundreds of years ago, literally thousands of of years ago, 3,300 and I believe 30 years ago, according to the Jewish calculation, these events happened to our ancestors like more than 100 generations ago. And it's, it's almost – it's kind of striking and I challenge people to find parallels to this. Is, is there any other parallel to this in the world? Events that happened literally thousands of years ago that not only people know the date of those events and know the people who partook in them but know the details and have not missed a year in marking it, in celebrating it, in acknowledging it, in having an entire festival and almost an entire religion that there's so many markers and milestones that are referencing back to those foundational events. I think it's just, it is it is kind of striking that we kind of see this with these mitzvahs. Okay, so let's go through the mitzvahs one, one at a time and then we'll try to maybe take some themes that are takeaway themes um, about chametz and matzah and about, the Exodus story in general. So the first thing is that there's a mitzvah to eat, matzah, on the night of Pesach. It's made out of the five grains. And there are, of course, a lot of details of how to how to make it and how to bake it and how to knead it. I'd advise everyone if they could ever visit a matzah bakery. Uh, it's a fascinating experience to just see the requirements that are found like, in ancient, ancient texts about how to avoid leavening, how it's played out in today in, in modern times and how like there's, you know, there's one room on the right side and one room on the left side. Each one of them closed with a door. One has the flower, one has the water and they keep their windows shut. So there's no, there's no chance of any water coming to the flower, any flower coming to the water. Because once the flower and the water touches, you have 18 minutes and that's it. It becomes chametz. It becomes rally 11 bread and they each dump it into the guy in the middle and he mixes it and they pass it on and it's mixing and there's 30 people and i was working with with great speed and and pressure and there's a big clock there and the clock starts and you have 18 minutes to make as many as many muffins as you can and once it's 18 minutes everything stops and the entire facility gets cleaned from top to bottom everyone's fingernails are examined and the entire thing is, is is totally cleansed for a new cycle. You have 18 minutes from beginning to end. to Make as many matzahs. Make hay while the sun shines. 18 minutes to make matzahs. As many ma- as you can you make. Once the time is up, okay. Now it's time to a total cleanse of the entire facility. And every single participant, there's 30 or 40 people working all in tandem. Everyone, everyone has their job. One guy's the roller, one guy's the spinner, one guy's the, the shaker, one guy's the mixer. And they're passing the matzahs, you know, down the assembly line. And then there's the one guy who actually puts it into the oven. And, uh, he's, I think, the highest paid because it's the most difficult job. Uh, and everyone knows, you know, and it's, there's just teamwork and, um, everyone's working together and it's all producing these amazing matzahs. There was a big controversy like a hundred years ago when they invented machine matzos, because they're able to now make it instead of the round, handmade matzos. They make it these square matzos that are made in machines, yeah. and what's there's there's a tremendous benefit to it because the machines are infallible; they'll they'll do the exact same thing every time. And not only that, there's less of a concern of a machine matzah having chametz in it. Because it's a machine, after all. It's, 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 there, there, there aren't deviations. There aren't differences between this matzah and that. So they're all identical. Because it's all gone through the same process. So therefore, some people say, actually, it's way better to have machine matzahs because there's no hummets in it, guaranteed. And it's way cheaper, though, which is also nice. Yeah. While while others will say, no, it's, it's a break from tradition. It's, it's machines. There aren't humans baking it. After all, there's a mitzvah to make the matzahs. You have to make it. With intention to make the matzah, how could you have a machine have intention? You have to have the guy who's operating the machine have intention. I don't know; it's kind of a step removed. So you have kind of people on both sides. You have some people say, "I'm only eating machine matzah," and maybe I'll have some round matzahs for the seder, but for the rest of the time, I want to make sure that it's the best; it's guaranteed to have any chametz. And then people in the other stream say, "I'm not going to touch it because, listen, that's not tradition." But I believe that argument was almost settled; was already settled, and now everyone really really eats machine matzah. But it is kind of interesting. That, uh, in our religion, we tend to view anything that's new with healthy skepticism. Don't re- we don't need a reinvention, uh, because, you know, if we've lasted so long, it's quite likely that we kind of figured things out. So you come up with these newfangled machine matzahs. You're going to have to really convince me that it's worth it, uh, and it's, it's worth to do something new. It has to be that the delta between how much better it is has to be so significant for that to actually gain traction. The next mitzvah is the prohibition against eating chametz after noon on the eve of Pesach. And this, of course, really highlights the seriousness that the Torah attributes to the prohibition of chametz and Pesach. You know, this is such a an important foundation in our religion because the Exodus you know, that was the, the great miracle that, sh- that showed to all with, uh, absolute clarity how the Almighty is controlling the world. This is the pillar on which the hall of Torah, so to speak, is reliant upon. Uh, and just the details is interesting. The prohibition kit starts. We know that, um, a day has 12 hours. And in, in halachic, parlance, there's hours that are uniform, and then there's like elastic hours. I don't know how they would actually translate it. Meaning that the day and night always have 12 hours, regardless of the season. Sometimes the hours are 60 minutes, and sometimes the hours are 40 minutes. Because, you know, we're about to start the winter now. Shorter days, longer nights. In, in the halachic understanding, there's 12 hours by day and by night, regardless. But they're called shows manios, which means hours that are elastic based upon the length of the day versus the length of the night. So sunrise and sunset is 12 hours. Figure out how many minutes you have in between and then divide that by 12. That's how long your halachic hour is going to be. And therefore, the halachic noon is not going to be 12 p.m. necessarily. It might be during the equinoxes, but it's, it's, it's going to be six halachic hours into the day. And from the hour number four, we stop eating hummets. And that's because we're scared. If you start eating in the fifth hour, what if it's, you know, cloudy outside? You can't tell when it's exactly noon. And then you may come to start eating into the sixth hour or past noon. And therefore, that's a problem. So you're able to eat the fourth hour, but not the fifth hour because you may eat in the sixth hour. And so every Jewish calendar that you'll find will have the last time to eat chametz on the day before Pesach. It'll have the last the final time. It's like around 11 o'clock or something like that, uh, around that time where we're, we don't eat chametz. You're not allowed to eat chametz beforehand. Uh, you have to burn the chametz at a certain time and you can eat chametz to a certain time as well. So there's a prohibition against eating the eve of Pesach. On Pesach, we're not allowed to eat chametz itself. We're not allowed to eat things that are even partially chametz, chametz composites. We have to destroy to burn the chametz before Pesach. And two additional prohibitions not to have chametz in your property and not to have chametz seen and not to see chametz in your property as well, which means if you're going, let's say, to Cancun for Pesach, you cannot have chametz in your domain, in your house, if you own the house, it would be a violation, even though you're not present in the house at the time, it would be a violation of this mitzvah to not have chametz found in your domain over the course of Pesach. Another interesting law, by the way, that is, if there was Chametz that was owned by a Jew over Pesach, and it wasn't sold, that Chametz becomes non-kosher. So you can have something which is perfectly kosher on its own merit, but because it was owned by a Jew over the course of Pesach, wasn't sold, therefore that cannot be consumed post Pesach. So it's one of those things where the day after Pesach, you're allowed to eat Chomets, but it's the one time a year that you may want to avoid patronizing stores owned by Jews because if they had the chametz in their domain and they owned it, they didn't sell it, it's actually non-kosher. It might be better for you to go to the... Grocery store down the block, which is not owned by a Jew, or maybe if it's a public company, then it's probably okay because its majority not owned by by a uh, by a Jew. But it's one of those interesting things that, of course, well, we like to support our own, as every community I'm sure does. But if it's going to create a problem that the chametz in the inventory was owned over Pesach by the Jew, it becomes actually prohibitive for consumption even after the restriction of chametz. Has been lifted after Pesach is over. I, I want to share just an, uh, a perspective on on chametz and uh, and matzah uh, that I think will help us, you know, have more of a understanding behind this mitzvah. Of course, you know, simply speaking, we can say, "Hey, listen, this is all relates to the Pesach episode, to the Exodus, to the Exodus. We left so fast; the, the bread wasn't able to rise." Kind of remember that, and simply stated, all the pesach mitzvos are there to bring us back to the exodus. But what I found interesting is that matzah, in certainly the haggadah on the seder night, is actually presented in two different ways. We begin the seder, halach ma'anya, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. So when I'm holding the matzah, I'm saying, okay, this is what my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents ate when they were slaves in Egypt. Poor man's bread. Right? It's not, it's not as tasty. And at the end of the Seder, at the end of the Haggadah, we say that why do we eat matzah? Because when the Jewish people left Egypt, they were left in such a hurry and such a frenzy that the dough wasn't allowed to rise. So there it seems like The matzah is the bread of freedom. So which one is it? Kind of interesting question. Just, you just look at the Haggadah. We present the matzah both as a bread, as a food of poor people, of slaves, and as bread of rich people, of people who have been liberated. It's just interesting. It seems contradictory. But I want to suggest, and maybe I've mentioned this idea in the past, that the Exodus itself is a, that the transformation of the Jewish people was not in our own identity, but it was in our allegiance. Meaning that we spent hundreds of years in Egypt and we became the most consummate slaves to Pharaoh. When we left what changed was not our status as slaves, rather was changed our status of slaves. To whom previously we were slaves to Pharaoh, and we're still slaves. This time we're slaves to the Almighty, and that's a, like a theorem to explain everything that happened in the, in, in the Exodus. Like it's it's it seems like there's a great emphasis that Pharaoh should know that I am God. It, it says it multiple times in the Exodus narrative. Why do we care about Pharaoh? We care about the Jewish people. They're the they're the object. They're the they're the main character in the story. Why is there such a an obsession with getting Pharaoh to recognize that God is in control? And the answer maybe is that the Jewish people had spent so many hundreds of years in servitude, subjugation to Pharaoh that he and he was like a, a demigod. He was a he was a, a deity, and their allegiances to him, their subjugation to him, their submission to him was was complete. The Exodus, what it facilitated was not that the Jewish people were not subjugated, rather that they were now subjugated to God instead of Pharaoh. And therefore, maybe what actually changed, this is the bread of poor people. This is the bread of the oppressed. This is the poor person's bread. This is the bread of someone who's subject to a master. That we ate before we left and we ate after we left because that part of our status, our identity, did not change. It only changed to whom we are subject. In that light, we can maybe explain some of the interesting things that we find in the Talmud relating to chametz. The Talmud in the book of Brachos on page 17a says something very curious. It says that one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Alexandri, when they would finish praying every day, they would add an additional Supplication, And they would say, you know what? God, I really want to do your will. You know that. Everyone knows that. But what's stopping me? What's inhibiting me from actually fulfilling your will? The yeast and the bread. The leaven and the bread. It says Rashi, the Eitzhahara. The evil inclination, according to this prayer, is comparable to to the agent that makes matzah into chametz. And now maybe there's a few ways to explain that. You know, one way perhaps is that the way the Yetzirah gets people to sin, it's kind of like yeast. It's artificially inflating the potential kickback, the potential benefit you're going to get from the sin. But just on, on a very broad level, what we're told here on the Exodus is that, okay, God's our master now. And even though Pharaoh has been retired as a potential master, it doesn't mean that there are no other, quote-unquote, masters vying for our allegiance. We have the Sahara the evil inclination. When someone submits themselves to the will of the Yetzirah, well, then they're not fulfilling the objective of the Exodus, because now... They have maybe cast away Pharaoh, but they've replaced him. Instead of replacing him with God, they've replaced Pharaoh with the evil inclination. Now they're obeying the evil inclinations, will. And therefore, even though it's very much, you know, backward looking, the idea of Pesach back to the Exodus, but the conflict undergirding this transformation where where we left Pharaoh and now we're free, so to speak, but we're really subject to God – That still applies with other false masters. Yes, Pharaoh was a false master. We got rid of him. But there's another false master. In fact, the Talmud elsewhere calls the Yitzharah, the evil clinician, the foreign god. There's some other imposter trying to command our allegiance. And that too is something that we're trying to overcome every Pesach. And maybe when we're checking our homes looking through every nook and cranny to find every every speck of chametz, working diligently to clear our home of any speck of leavened bread, maybe what we really should be doing in tandem with that is examining our heart For any leavened bread in our heart, any corner, any portion of our allegiance, that's not to God, not to the ultimate master, but to the modern-day incarnation of Pharaoh, And that, of course, is the evil chanation. And that kind of brings this whole idea, the separation of the matzah and the chametz, the false gods, the false masters, the pharaohs of the world from maybe our destiny and our our hope and our striving, and that is embodied in the matzah, which is total submission to the Almighty. In a few weeks, we're going to get into the last mitzvah related to the Exodus the mitzvah of telling over the story of the Exodus on Pesach Eve and throughout the year.